Um, beloved, we're working through uh, the prophecy that was recorded at the book of Jeremiah. So take your Bibles and open there to Jeremiah. We're going to be looking at chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 today. Uh, fly over of those four chapters. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, pull the Bible out of the pew in front of you there and turn to page 634. You'll find uh, Jeremiah 7 on 634 in those Bibles. Gerald took a poll or an informal one. Uh, I'll take my own. Uh, if you had to tell me if you preferred to give help or receive help, my guess is everybody's going to check. I'd rather give help than receive it. Um, and yet in our covenant, right, when we covenant together, remind ourselves of what God has called us to, we, we are called to do both, to exercise the care and watchfulness over each other, to admonish, encourage, and help one another, and to gladly receive that care from each other as we strive together to grow in knowledge, holiness, and comfort in our union with Christ. So Jeremiah, in chapter 7, 8, and 9, has been sent by the Lord with a message to stand basically like at the glass doors of the temple, if you just take the glass doors of the church, as people are walking into church to worship on Sunday morning and say, you guys are believing lies. Can you imagine if that happened? That's what God calls Jeremiah to do in, in chapter 7, to bring a word of correction that God's people have to listen to if they're going to receive the comfort they want. And I think that's the point here of these four chapters taken as a whole, is that we have to receive God's correction if we want God's comfort. We have to receive God's word for us, his care for us, uh, his correction and rebuke of us. We have to receive his help, listen to him, and turn if we want God's comfort. So in chapter 7, um, up to the verse 3 verses of chapter 8, we get that sermon that he preached in the temple. And that's going to be, the, we'll talk about that as exposing the lies. We need to expose the lies that we believe. Chapter 7, 1 through 8, 3. Then in chapter 8, verse 4, to the end of chapter 9, chapter 8, 4 to 9, 26, we see him lamenting the lies that people believe. Him and the Lord lamenting together the lies that his people believe. And then in chapter 10, ends by a call to worship the living God. So expose the lies, lament the lies, and worship the living God. So we work through these chapters together. We have to receive God's correction if we want God's comfort. Uh, so let's look at uh, chapter 7, uh, where Jeremiah is called to expose the lies, and we should hear that call and be exposed, both the ones we believe, and help each other. Um, chapter 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, right, without the glass doors out here, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. We'll stop there and just kind of think about that and keep going in a minute. But you can imagine, right, Jeremiah's been called. Stand at the temple gate as people are coming to church on Sunday. I mean, coming to the temple on Sabbath, on Saturday, in the, to put it back in his context. And say, you guys coming to worship, you guys need to change your lives because the words you're believing, this is God's house, is a pious platitude. It is not going to save you. Now, as the world was changing around them, we've mentioned that last a couple of times, right? Jeremiah prophesied through the, the falling apart of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, the 
crumbling of Assyria, the attempted rise of Egypt, the eventual rise of Babylon that will eventually lead uh, Judah into exile. And then during all that time, Jeremiah is prophesying to God's people. The world's changing around them. They had every earthly reason to be nervous about their survival. Uh, and they were reminding each other, this is God's house. He won't let anything happen to his house. In fact, we've seen that before, maybe they were saying. We saw that in Isaiah's day, when I, King Ahaz was on his throne. And Assyria tried to come and, and destroy Jerusalem. God delivered us then. He'll do it again. We might remember in our day that Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And we should rightly take that as comfort, but that glorious and entirely true promise, beloved, is no guarantee that the First Baptist Church of Wolfert will endure until Jesus comes back. No more than God's promise to Israel in that day was a blanket promise that they could live and do and worship however and whatever they wanted Monday through Saturday and then run to the temple and expect to be saved. We see that there are ways that need to change in verse 9. Will will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely? That's the second half of the Ten Commandments that they're breaking. Or make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you've not known. And there's the first half. And then verse 10, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. They break all the commandments, and then they come to church and want salvation with no intention of turning from their sins. And that's the key, key idea there, the key line, with only to go on doing all these abominations. They're trusting the rituals, they're trusting the temple, Oh, they're not changing their lives. And so God's reply in verse 7, chapter 7, verse 11, is, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? You might recognize that because Jesus quotes the same thing to the Pharisees in the week he's crucified. Has this house become a den of thieves? That's their hideout, right? A, a, a robber's den is the place where they come back to for security after they've gone and done all their pillaging and looting cave in the mountains or a stronghold or a fortress, whatever that is, a place where they go because they think they'll be safe there and hide out from those who would take vengeance on them. And God asks them, you think that's what my temple is? A place where you can go murder, commit adultery, steal, commit idolatry, and then come here and be safe? And so verse 12, chapter 7, verse 12, he points them to Shiloh. Go to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first. And see what I did to it because of the evil of my people, Israel. Shiloh was where they pitched the tabernacle right after they'd conquered the land under Joshua. Tabernacle stayed at Shiloh for most of Israel's history before the kingdom, before the monarchy. And at this point in history, Shiloh was a ruin. So God says, you can go look. Just because my altar was there, just because sacrifices were made, just because at one point that was a holy place, did that insulate it from my wrath when my people rebelled and sinned and committed idolatry? Of course, I might say to you today, what about Jerusalem, where the temple was in Jeremiah's day, and then was again in Jesus' day, and is no more? Will God tolerate it when his people reject him? We want his salvation, but not his holiness. We want his mercy, but not obedience. Jeremiah's message to everyone walking through the doors of the temple is no. No, God will not tolerate that. In 7.6, we saw their sins summarized. They were a society oppressing the weak, 
and the powerless, killing the innocent. But those kind of community sins can always, I think it's a universal rule, certainly here God highlights, they can trace back to our household sins. Sins appear in public because they are permitted or tolerated or even taught in private. And so in chapter 7, verse 17, just keep scanning down the page. He turns to household worship. Do you not see, he's talking to Jeremiah, what they are doing in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. That's probably Ashtart, Asherah, Ishtar, one of the female goddesses that you can read some of in the kings or maybe the Babylonian goddess. Children, fathers, mothers all working together in a family devotion to the queen of heaven. And they pour out their drink offerings to other gods and provoke me to anger. Their family worship has been corrupted. Whatever they do on Sundays or on Saturdays for them, sacrifice times when they come to the temple, when they're at home, the whole family is conspiring together to do worship to the queen of heaven or the other idols. And we're called in our homes to lead our children to know and love the Lord. Community sins come from household sins. So dads, are you being active to raise your children in the teaching and instruction of Jesus? That's your command. It's our command to us. Raise your children in the teaching and instruction of the Lord, which is not a command to take them to church and let other people teach them about the Lord. It is a call and a command for you to teach and instruct your children. To take the example from Deuteronomy 6, when you rise up and lie down, when you come in and go out, it just means all the time. This is a part of your natural life. You should be talking about the Lord, giving thanks to the Lord, uh, calling out and remarking on sin in their lives, in your own life, bringing repentance and confession. You might have formal times of family devotions together and informal times of conversation. Dads, are you doing it? Moms and dads, are you doing it together? Are you pulling together in your household to instruct your children? It's part of all of your life about what it means to follow Jesus. So if not, let me just, this is a suggestion, right? I don't have a word from the Lord that you must do this, but here's my suggestion. Aim for three to four times a week where you're all sitting down to a meal together and over that meal, ask each other, dad, dad's not there, mom, ask. Uh, You can read some bit of Bible and ask, how does this show us what God is like? If the kids are old enough, the Bible reading challenge may be good. If they're too young, dad, read it ahead of time and pick a couple of verses if they're all young, you know, pick a good children's Bible. I've got lots of resources I'm happy to recommend. Three to four times a week, aim to have one meal together. And over that meal, read a little bit of Bible and ask, how does that show us what God is like? You can do a whole lot more than that. You can do things different than that. That's not like the Bible way to do family devotion. But if you're not doing it, there's a way to start. <clears throat> so household devotions, what Jeremiah calls them out, right? Like the temple thing, you're pr- trusting in the temple but you have no intention of changing your ways. Your society's overrun with sin, and you can trace that back in some ways to your household devotions. And so that ends up then in chapter 7, verse 31, as God keeps this, as give, giving Jeremiah this sermon for the temple and exposing child sacrifice. I mean, 731. Uh, let's go back to uh, 7, 7, verse 30. The sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They've set their detestable things in the house that's called by my name to defile it. And they've built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is southwest of Jerusalem, right at the end of the hill, it's a valley, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. That was the um, 
awful idolatry the Canaanites were doing before Israel showed up. Sacrificing to Moloch, their sons and their daughters. And God's very clear, right, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Like, if you want to think about how awful does the Lord detest this, how clear does he want to be, like, um, it didn't even occur to me to ask you to do this. I didn't even, like, think maybe that's a good way to worship me and then reject it. It's not even enter my mind it's so detestable. Of course, God doesn't have those kinds of deliberations. He's revealing himself in a way we can understand. The point is, they are sacrificing their kids to their gods, their household's devotions, but to a society that gives away their kids. You can witness our own abortion culture in the U.S. I mean, we're thankful, we should be thankful that it's no longer a prescription from our national courts uh, to kill babies in the wombs as a permitted uh, right, but you can just see the backlash, and I think President Biden launched his campaign with a promise to overturn, restore Roe, to make it that way, and he's got lots of support. There's plenty of support all over the nation and parts of our nation for that. How many of our kids, uh, I'm sorry, that abortion culture that, you know, we we, want to kill our kids in the womb for our careers and our convenience. We live the way we want to live, do the jobs we want to do, pursue the big things we want to pursue. I just just, If, if you've done, you've done that, that, been complicit, implicit in that, in that um, let me just say a just word, say a word of what you need to do, you need to do about that, about us, about it, and repent. But know, but know that, as with all, as with all of our sins, there is mercy, mercy and grace for, for everyone who comes repenting. I suspect many of us are not tempted directly with that, but I do wonder in, in our culture more generally, that's the awful manifestation of it, but in our culture more generally, how many of our kids are so scheduled with activities for the convenience and careers of their parents that any one of those activities by itself could be a really good you know, instrument or tool or option for their growth and maturity, but you stack them all up like modern Americans do and they undermine the household and are calling to raise our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And yet, with distorted family worship and child sacrifice, they come to the temple and think, ah, it's God's house. We'll be safe here. With the sins running rampant and no repentance, they trust the temple doors are the boundary beyond which God's wrath will not come. And God will have none of it. So in chapter 7, verse 16, we skip this, but let's go back to it. God tells Jeremiah, as for you, do not pray for this people. Don't lift up a cry or a prayer for them. Do not intercede with me. I will not hear you. Their unrepentant sin and my wrath against it cannot be turned away by your prayers, Jeremiah. That's what prophets do. They don't just give messages from God. They intercede to God. They offer prayers in God's counsel. It's one of the prophets' calling. And the Lord just tells them ahead of time. Like a, like he was, you might think of the prophet sort of like prophets, a little bit like the cabinet that the president has, right? Consultors and heads of departments and the council around his throne, the king's throne. The counselors come with ideas and he's saying, Jeremiah, I don't even bring the idea that I would have mercy on these people. Have you seen what they're doing? That, now that's an awful place to be. <clears throat> when your sin has caused God to turn you over to it. In some ways... I suspect, in in the same way that Jonah's message to Nineveh, God's wrath is coming with no mention of repentance, and yet when Nineveh repents, God relents. In some ways, I suspect this this public 
warning to Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. Look, they're, they're making cakes for the queen of heaven is an invitation to pray instead of for their salvation, for their repentance, right? Pray for them differently. And for the nation to overhear and think, whoa, God won't even listen to Jeremiah's prayers for us. Maybe we need to fix our ways. But if they could persist in the, in the road they're on, if they trust their platitudes and don't repent, uh, then no amount of prayer will turn away God's wrath. In verse 21, in chapter 7, God tells the people, and he said, the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Remember, they're walking into the temple as Jeremiah says this. Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. The burnt offering was the one that was supposed to be entirely consumed on the altar. Most of the sacrifices had a part where the, the animal was cooked and eaten as a sign of fellowship with God, but not the burnt offering. That was supposed to be entirely consumed on the altar as a sign of their total devotion to God. It was the, uh, usually you'd have a sin offering that would cleanse away sin, and then you'd offer a burnt offering as a sign of dedication. And God basically says, yeah, cut that out. You might as well get a meal out of this. Go ahead and, and take the burnt offering and eat it too, because your sacrifice is clearly not that you're devoted to me. So I'm not receiving that as a pleasing sacrifice. You might as well just eat it. Get a meal out of it because it's not doing anything to please me. I didn't say what I love is sacrifices when I saved my people from Egypt. What I said is, I love you. I'm taking you. Listen to my voice. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. So God gave the law and the Ten Commandments and taught them how to live together at Sinai. Before, in Leviticus, he outlined the sacrificial system. Because the point was not to make sacrifices. The sacrifices were supposed to keep the temple clean so that their sins could be forgiven and they could live holy lives, which is what we see in Titus for us. The forgiveness of sins is not the goal of the gospel. The forgiveness of sins is the root. Our justification is the root, which is essential for a tree to have roots. But roots are supposed to draw up nourishment so that a tree grows into maturity and bears fruit. And the forgiveness of our sins is supposed to cleanse us and purify us, as Titus uh, <clears throat> 2, verse 14, purify us so that we could be a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're supposed to be restored to God, have our sins forgiven so that we can be changed and live for him. Sacrifices come in after the law in the Old Testament so that as they pursue obedience, they can be forgiven when they fail. They are not given so they can do whatever they want and then be okay. And Jeremiah, sends, I mean, God sends Jeremiah to expose those lies. Your platitudes, your easy believism, your attempt to have salvation and forgiveness without obedience and faithfulness is empty. Maybe that's the kind of gospel you believed. Or that you hear. Or that you're tempted to tell other people. Jesus will make all things well if you just trust in him with no mention of the need for repentance and obedience. But that's not the true gospel. And to the extent that we still believe it, that we want to run to Jesus to excuse our lives and not change them, we should hear Jeremiah. Have those lives exposed. And then we should lament them. We should turn from them and grieve 
the ways we believe that way. So we expose the lies, the hypocrisy, the platitudes, and then from chapters 8 and 9, we'll see, again, a very consistent pattern in Jeremiah uh, that the sins of God's people caused Jeremiah not to rise up in self-righteousness, but to bow down in grief. So lament the lies, chapter 8, 4 through 9, 26. Uh, God, in chapter 8, 4, the poetry, you might, if you're looking at the Bible, it starts up with poetry. The sermon's over, and now we're into more of the prophetic message and summary statements here. And uh, God says, this is what you'll say to them. When men fall, don't they get up? If you turn the wrong way, and if you turn away, don't you return? That's, that's chapter 8, verse 4, right? If you fall, don't you get up? If you, if you turn the wrong way, don't you turn around and go the right way? But why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They slide back, but they don't turn around. They, they fall and they don't get up. They don't, they don't want to go forward. Verse 7, he says, even the birds know how to migrate, right? <laughs> they know, I mean, you can see the geese fly over. Maybe that'll remind you. Like, even the birds know when it's time to go south and when it's time to come back north. My people, they don't even know when to repent when they sin. I've given them my rules. I've told them what to do. And what the birds do by instinct, we're supposed to do deliberately. To be zealous for good works. Instead, they use God's word to lie. They use God's word to lie. So chapter 8, 8 and 9. How can you say, is God talking to his people, how can you say we're wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes, that's the, the law teachers and experts, the lying pen of the scribes has made it, that's the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord, into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame and they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? They have the law. The scribes are turning the law into a lie. And so the, the sages who are trying to learn from the law are getting it wrong. And without the word of the Lord, uh, they have no wisdom. Uh, some people, I just want to warn you, some people have taken like this verse and others like it to say the word of God is not the words on the page. Because it says they have the law, but they're rejecting the word. So some people want to say, well, the, the law, the words aren't really God's word. You, you can sort of hear God's word through what's on the page, but the page itself is not, what's actually there is not, not infallible, which is just rubbish. We just say it's rubbish. That's not what Jeremiah means. He doesn't mean the law is somehow less inspired than some word behind it. He means they're taking the law and twisting it. How? Verse 8, 11, chapter 8, verse 11. He tells them how they're particularly doing it. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. He's referring back to that phrase, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, right? We've got these promises. We've seen God work in the past. We can take the law and we can, we can know that God dwells among us and the sacrifices that we're offering at this temple are supposed to cleanse the temple <clears throat> so that he will continue to dwell among us. And they take those words and then they twist them uh, so that the people will feel at peace even when they're committing sin. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They've healed the wound lightly. <clears throat> what about for us? We... You can see this on, on evidence all, all over the place. <clears throat> he who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. That's Bible, 2 Corinthians. Right? He who sows abundantly will reap abundantly. It's totally true, but it's a lie if you say, so if you give $10 to my ministry, it'll come back as $100 to you somehow. But I got a Bible verse. But I've totally lied about it. That's not what Paul meant when he wrote it in 2 Corinthians. If you give 10, you'll get 100 back. What Paul said is if you give your material goods, he'll give you all the grace you need to do the work you need to do to honor and glorify him. So we take the words of Scripture and lie with them. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins is totally true. 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But it becomes a lie if you don't start with, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And instead, just look at people living in sin and saying, but he'll forgive you. That's God's job. He's a forgiver. Absolutely right. He is a forgiver to everyone who comes repenting. And so we can take the, the words of the Bible and twist them into a lie. We have our slogans, once saved, always saved. I think we use that slogan in the same way that the Israelites were using the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. <clears throat> it is absolutely true. When God saves someone, he saves someone to the uttermost. When we are united to God by faith, when we are born again, his spirit works, so we are sealed to the day of redemption. <clears throat> and yet how many people have used that phrase not to say, I am trusting and loving the Lord, but to say, one time, a long time ago, I prayed a prayer, so now I can live however I want. Because once saved, always saved. How many of us have been comforted or tempted to comfort others with that phrase? Oh, I see that you're openly living in sin, and I see you have no intention of repenting. But don't worry, once saved, always saved. That's a lie. You might think about our church membership practices. How many members of this church have we never met? And yet, as members of this church, what we're saying as a congregation is, your soul is secure. You have put your faith in Christ, and he will hold you to the end. And yet, none of us have ever met them. I hope and I trust most of the ones we've never met are secure in the Lord, worshiping with other churches, uh, growing in God. I, I pray that's true, but we don't know. And yet, in affirming them as members, we are telling them that they can have peace with God. You have peace with God, peace with God, peace with God. And we don't know. See, this is the problem is we don't know. Are we, are we healing their wound lightly or are we telling the truth? <clears throat> I'm personally wrestling with my own fears about that whole process. So you can pray for me and us. We think about what that means. And I'm welcome to hear your thoughts about it. <clears throat> But what we must not do is allow platitudes and sentiment to give people false comfort because that's what the false teachers are doing in Jeremiah's day. That's what the false teachers are doing is giving a quick and easy peace when there really is no peace. And beloved, we do not want to be standing before Jesus and find out that we very nicely escorted people to hell. Because we never said, you need to repent of your sins. You need to follow God. You've been purified to be zealous for good works. Because that kind of thing never stays confined. If you get used to lying to God or about God, there's no one you won't lie to. If you will lie to God, there's no one you won't lie to. If you will lie about God, there's no one you won't lie to. And we see that in chapter 9. Society's falling apart. So look at chapter 9, verse 3. <clears throat> they bend their tongue like a bow. Their, their, their words are weapons. That's that image. Like they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, <clears throat> and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor. Put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. <clears throat> they have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon a deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. This is 
I think every commentary I read made some some room, like, this is societal downfall. When nobody trusts anybody, a culture, a society, a community will not endure. And it sounds very familiar to the skepticism and mistrust that permeates our culture. Because when you get used to lying to God or about God, when you get used to suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and ignoring the reality that's out there, you will, there's nothing you won't lie about eventually. And societies crumble and fall apart. And as we see repeated, repeated this lies exposed and highlighted by the lament. So go back, so go back skip to the so middle part, part, part of chapter 8. But look at chapter, look at chapter 8, eight verse 18. My joy, My joy is gone. Grief, grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the city of the daughter of my people. From the length and breadth of the land, sorry, the cry of the daughter of my people, from the length and the breadth of the land, is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? That's their cry. And the Lord answers, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and their foreign idols? And the people answer back, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we're not saved. For the wound of my the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? And the answer in that day is, yes, there is, there was. So then why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Why have they not gone to the healer? Why have they not listened to the words of truth from God and gone to the one who can heal them? He knows they're believing lies, and he knows those lies will catch up to them. And the problem is many of them sincerely believe them. They don't, I think most of the people don't know their lies. They've been led into deception by leaders who are lying to them. That's at the end of chapter 10. He'll say that the shepherds, they, they will go into exile because the shepherds are stupid. That's chapter 10, verse 21. They, the shepherds, the kings, the prophets, the priests, they don't inquire of the Lord. So therefore, the whole people is not prospered and the flock is, is scattered. He laments, he grieves. At the same time, he's disgusted by them. So in chapter 9, verse 2, he says, Oh, that I had a desert in the desert, a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they're all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. And then and it's when they bend their bow, their tongue like a bow, and falsehood and not truth is coming. James, he's like, I want to get out of here. I grieve over them. I don't, want to, I don't want to get out of here, and I want to get away from them. And I imagine that you have experienced that weird mix of compassion and revulsion about the sin that plagues our communities, in our media, in our social feeds, in our news, in our own hearts. That weird mix of, oh, those lies they're trumpeting are going to destroy them, and I'm grieved by that. And, oh, those lies they're trumpeting are so awful, I just want to get out of here. Do you resonate with that? That's Jeremiah's experience. But Jeremiah can't do that. He's got orders from God. He's been given a message to stay and proclaim. And we can't do that because we've got orders from God to make disciples of the nations, baptize them and teach them. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptize them and teach them all that Christ has commanded us. We're not here to look out for ourselves. We're here to make disciples of the nations. And it certainly includes our partnerships across the seas and also the nation that we live among, our people. And so we, we can't flee and put our heads in the sand. We, we stay here and we, we grieve. And I think it is okay, beloved, 
and maybe even commanded, not commanded, that's too strong, expected, that we would have times looking around us that we just have a grief that we can't get over. And everything in our society is going to tell us to stop being sad and be happy. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And what the Lord really would treasure in us is to be honest with our lament about the sin in ourselves and the sin in our society. To really grieve it. Not to push him away like it's just them, but to admit like Isaiah did. I live among a people of unclean lips and I have unclean lips as well. We have a bit of a problem in these chapters. I have read it, I've presented it as if it's Jeremiah doing the grieving, but the way that I left off at 9 verse 2, oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place that I might leave my people and get away from them, they're all adulterers, that runs straight in to verse 3. They bend their tongues like a bow, falsehood and not truth has grown among strong in the land. They proceed from evil to evil, for they do not know me, declares the Lord. Now that's the Lord speaking clearly in verse 3. So is it the Lord speaking in verse 2, who wants to get away from his people? And go lodge in the desert? Is it the Lord speaking in verse, chapter 8, verse 21, when he says, The wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. And the commentators are all split, because you can't tell. And I want to suggest that we shouldn't try to split it, because the prophets speak for God, and the prophets represent God. And so when Jeremiah is lamenting, he's telling us something true about the heart of God. He does not love it when he gets to discipline people. He does not love it. When he gets to stand up and say, I'm right, you're wrong. His people's sin grieves him. God draws near to us. And never more so than in Christ, who took on our flesh to suffer along with us. The children are weak, so that he's shared, the older brother shared in flesh and blood with us. So that he can say he is tempted in every way as we are. He knows our sufferings, he knows our sorrows, he knows our pains. Gerald did some of this in Sunday school this morning. The pain of what it meant to save us. Is pain that the Godhead never had to know, Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet he took on flesh to experience what he had never experienced. It's a crazy, amazing mystery and mind-blowing and humbling. And knowing that true God is the only hope that we've got. Knowing him who is holy and just and sends this correction into our lives, and knowing that he sends that correction to us as a grieving, compassionate Father, should open us to receive it. And that should help us as we talk to others too. There's a way to bring truth into somebody's life that is very aggressive. It puts up a barrier. And there's a way to bring truth into somebody's life that is kind, clear, not nice in the culture's definition of nice. It's never nice to say hard things in the culture's world. But in, in the good, kind, godly way to come with identification and compassion that leaves open the possibility of repentance. I bet you know that in your own life. You can probably, if you think about it very carefully, maybe a good exercise this afternoon, think of a time when somebody told you a truth in a way that made you just immediately push back. And then later you realize they were right. You might think about, how could, could that person have said something or acted in a way differently so I would have understood the truth sooner? Or did they paint you into a corner so that it felt like you had no, no choice but to push back? And then try to think of somebody who, was able to bring the truth into your life in a way that you received it. So that we, as we both receive God's correction and seek to be his prophets in the world, the work of the church to bring the gospel to the nations, can we imitate that kind of wisdom. 
and bring the truth clearly with compassion. Because that is the way our God is. He must give himself to us. Knowing him is our only hope. Look at chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. There's a couple of, if you're looking at your Bibles, the way it's laid out, particularly in the ESV, you can see that it goes from poetry where the lines are indented funny to prose, just regular speech where the lines are written normally. And that happens in verse 23. It's sort of a break from all the imagery where God just tells us straight up, here's what you should think. (laughs) Uh, Thus says the Lord, chapter 9, verse 23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. All right, so we stop there. But he's, he's taking away everything that earthly, gives us earthly security, right? If foreign powers are coming, if there's an invasion on the way, if wicked rulers are on their thrones, if there's a threat to you, what are we going to hope in? Well, wisdom, might, and wealth are the things that deliver us in an earthly sense. And he's just said, hey, I don't trust in any of that. Instead, this is what you should boast in. Here's your confidence. Here's what you build your life on. Verse 24, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. He loves steadfast love and righteousness and justice. He loves keeping his word. He loves coming through on his promises. He loves showing that everything he says he can do, he can do, and he does it for the good of his people. He loves it. And he loves it in us. So if we love him, we're going to try to be a people who are of true, steadfast love and righteousness and faithfulness because we are confident, not that we can handle this, but that we know the God who does and who always handles it right and always handles it with justice and steadfast, loyal love. They delight him. He loves them. And he loves seeing it in us, which is why he loved Jesus, his son, most of all. Because never did he see his image reflected as it was supposed to be reflected, as in his son, steadfast love and righteousness and justice, which shows us the depth of his love for us, that that is the son that went to the cross for us. And the wrath of God was poured out on him. And that is our boast that we know him. So righteousness is the goal of the gospel. But the roots that feed us and train us to renounce ungodliness and pursue godliness is that mercy. That the love and justice and righteousness of God caused his son to come for us. So that we could be cleansed so we could draw near. So we could worship the living God. So we lament the lies and we grieve. We grieve them in our own lives. We grieve them when we see them in our church. We grieve them in the world. Because we know God who loves justice and righteousness and steadfast love. And we have been restored so we can worship. So chapter 10, worship the living God. Hear the word of the Lord that speaks to you, house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. Everybody around you is panicking. They see the signs. They worship the stars. They think the moon. They see the, 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 the eclipses. You know, whatever signs they're seeing. And they panic. And they worry. Babylon's star is rising. Egypt's star is on the wane. What are we going to do? And the Lord says, don't, don't listen to that. Don't, listen to, go, don't get worked up by what the nations get worked up over. Don't get worked up over a bunch of what your culture gets worked up over. No, because the customs of the peoples are emptiness. 
And he's going to give a, a sort of mock the idols here. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Don't be afraid of them. They cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. They can't hurt you. They can't do good for you either. And so Jeremiah turns to worship. That's, don't be afraid of them. Don't, don't act like them. Don't make the sacrifices to them. Don't get worked over the things they get worked up over. What you should do instead is verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of a craftsman and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. And all the work, uh, they are all the work of skilled men. I think what you're supposed to see there is that they are glorious looking. They're gold and purple. I mean, they're, they're beautiful and radiant. But look past the gilding, and it's a hunk of wood that was cut from the forest. Isaiah will use a similar kind of thing. God will give Isaiah, right? That half the tree was burned up in the fire to cook your meat. So don't get impressed and don't get afraid. Verse 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. All our deceptions and our devastations are rooted in our worship. Jeremiah, the prophets, the Bible just always comes back to that. You see sin multiplying in the land. And you think we got to make the right laws and we got to get the right morals. And all of that is true so far as it goes. But all of that springs out of hearts that are worshiping anything besides the living God. And so while we do hope for good, just authorities, the real hope that we ought to have for ourselves, our homes, and our communities is that people would turn to the Lord. Because if we don't worship the true and living God, we get freaked out and afraid of all the things. Uh, we're not going to be able to live my best life. I'm not going to be able to be my authentic self. I'm not going to be able to live my own truth. These are the things the world's getting worked up about right now. And the word of the Lord is, man, don't, don't listen to that. Listen to the Lord, the true and living God, who reigns in steadfast love and faithfulness and justice. He is, he is a living God. He is the only creator that's where he goes next. Thus you shall say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power and who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Who, When he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. And I just insert, I think that means without knowledge of the Lord. Like we we don't find out on our own how to live this life. We, we've got to come to him. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. The images are false. There's no crap in them. They're worth it. It's illusion. illusion. At the time of their punishment, they perish. Not like these. He is he who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things. 
Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 16 brings it down from the creator of all cosmos, the king of all the nations, to his personal presence with his people. He's not just a creator, he's a covenant maker. He, he makes family bonds where family bonds didn't exist. And he did that with his people Israel, and in Christ he has grafted us in so that we are his, and he is ours. He's not a genie. To be asked of a certain number of wishes according to our heart's desires. He's not a power, just a force or an influence. He's not a blind watchmaker who's wound up the world and walked away and doesn't care. He's not a philosophical first principle or a first cause, an idea to be played with and bandied around. Yeah, but what if God was like this? But what if God was like that? Yeah, but what if God was like this? As if he's ours to make. He's not a cosmic vending machine. He doesn't dole out wealth and health or emotional well-being if you just put the right payment in the offering plate. He is a true and living God who is holy and good, righteous and just, steadfast love and justice and righteousness are his delight, which means he will not let us comfortably stay sinning. But he will discipline those he loves and judge those who reject him. Verses 17 and 18, chapter 10. This is the warning of the coming exile. Again, gather up your bundle from the ground, you who dwell under siege. Pack up your, your, your hobo sack. Because thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm slinging, you, I'm slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress that they may feel it. Sounds painful. Just talking about parenting uh, this morning, right? If your kids don't feel some of the consequences of their actions, they do really awful things, and you make it where it doesn't hurt at all, what are they going to do? They're going to do it again. What are we going to do? We're going to do it again. So God's mercy here is to sling them out of the land so they can feel it, so they will wake up. So by God's grace and his judgment, they will repent. Which, in the way it worked, the remnant that went into exile is the remnant that repented and would be brought back. He will discipline those he loves and judge those who reject him. And if we love him, we'll receive it. We have to receive his correction in order to receive his comfort. And the comfort is so sweet that it can only be received if we receive his correction. That's where Jeremiah ends in verse 23, chapter 10, verse 23. So at the end of all this meditation about the lies they believed and the way they need to repent and the way God is sending him, I mean, what must it have been like to stand at the temple gates and say, you trust this house. That's not going to do you any good. You're making these sacrifices. He's not taking them as they come in and go out. I think we'll actually see what it cost him. I think it's chapter 26. So Jeremiah gives his own prayer. I know, O Lord, sorry, chapter 10, verse 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of a man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Like we can't figure out how to be holy on our own. We need your law and your word, and we have to listen. We have to receive. So he says, verse 24, correct me, Lord, but, not, but in justice. Correct me, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, on the peoples that call not on your name, for they've devoured Jacob and have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. And that last verse is either of, uh, looking back, uh, Jeremiah, after he's seen the exile, because he, he lives through the exile, or, or it's a reference to the Israelites who aren't really his people anymore, still living in the land, who've made a waste of everybody else because they've led him into lies. But either way, Jeremiah's heart 
Jeremiah's call and our, what we should imitate is 23 and 24. I need you. Correct me, O God. Show me my sins. Bring out my faults so that I can turn from them and walk with you. Reveal where I need to be reformed so that I can be zealous for good works, a people for your own possession, so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Do you receive correction? Are there people in your life who know they can correct you? Are you managed to isolate yourself so you come and gather, but you're weak and your relationships are so tenuous that there's nobody who could see into your life? Nobody could come like Jeremiah and say, brother, sister, turn. Friend, what about your fears? How about your holiness? Does anybody know you that well? You have to pursue that. Modern American life will not create relationships of giving and receiving encouragement and correction. You will have to make intentional, deliberate effort. You can come and hear the word preached. Praise God. But we all need more than just the preaching. We don't need less, you hear me, not less than the preaching of the word and the gathering of the saints and the singing of songs and the praying of prayers. We need not less than that, but we need more. We need each other in, our, in each other's lives. So again, family worship, a couple of practical steps earlier for your own life. Let me just ask you, just think, who are the two or three people who know uh, that they can correct me? And do they know me well enough that they would have the ability to correct me? If I was heading off the rails, who would know me and I'm knowing well enough and I'm pursuing that kind of friendship so they would say something and they know they could and they would see it. And if you don't have those, beloved, make that like among the top two or three priorities of this year for you. Invite a member up to lunch. Come to the ladies' Bible study or the men's breakfast. Get involved with the home groups and then take the people in that home group out for lunch or grab coffee. Um, pursue each other's lives and look somebody in the eye and say, brother, sister, I love and I trust you. You have free range in my life. If you see anything, say it. Make it top two or three priority for this year. Somebody could correct you. Because we need that correction if we're going to experience the comfort. Our, the spirit in us will not let us rest comfortably if we are deliberately rebelling against him. But when people come into our lives with correction, who we trust, they also come into our lives with comfort. Because they love us. Like God loves us. Because they bring this correction in the hope of repentance. Because they also see the grace in our lives to be able to come like Jeremiah with what is good and what is right and lament along with us. So that we can know together the glorious steadfast love and justice and righteousness of our God and Father who loved us in Jesus Christ so that he could cleanse us and make us his. Let's give thanks to him. You are a gracious and merciful God, holy and true. And we, it is not in us, God. It is not in us to see our own sin. It is not in us to correct ourselves. We cannot plan our own ways in righteousness apart from you. And you, in your mercy, have given us the scriptures in your word and the word made flesh and he has died and risen and you have sent your spirit to open our eyes and soften our hearts and unstop our ears and change our lives and cause our lives to bear fruit. We are thankful, Lord God, that we can come to you as your temple, as your people drawn to you by grace in Jesus Christ and say peace because in you there is real peace. And we're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.